Welcome back tonight. I know that many of you are glad to see me, none more than the teen boys who are thankful they don't have to preach tonight or lead songs or any of that. My apologies for the snafu this morning, but uh, the plan is a week from tonight uh, we will have the teen boys leading us in worship as part of our uh, desire to be intentionally intergenerational. So I hope that you'll come back and join us for that. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing some of the younger men and uh, hearing their talents, not just for preaching, but for leading worship in song and leading us in prayer and reading scripture and so forth. Uh, By the way, that's a a great thing to do. Um, I can't tell you convey it strongly enough except to say, I wouldn't be doing what I do had it not been for being where you are and people from the congregation asking me to read a scripture or do the Lord's Supper or say a prayer or even preach. And through those times, it wasn't necessarily that what I did was so amazing, but it was the encouragement afterward that the congregation would give and pour into me that kept me going. Um, I was talking with someone earlier today who has a, a student at Oklahoma Christian, and she was saying that in this year's class, there's only like three students that are going into preaching ministry. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of reasons that culture is changing, but one of the things that we can do, we can't affect all the elements of why that's so, one of the things that we can do as a congregation that's so, so important is to encourage um, the young men, especially as they lead and take up different aspects, so that they can uh, continue on and keep going and carry the torch. Um, As we talked about this morning, we have to think a generation away what the church will look like, and that's only going to be there a generation from now if we are intentional about how we do it now. So I hope you'll come, hope you'll um, encourage and be encouraged uh, through that process. This is one of my favorite times of year. Um, It's not as hot as summer. It's not as dreadful as winter. Uh, Normally, we're we're not yet into the Christmas season, but the retailers are rushing us into that. Now we've got Christmas music playing everywhere. People, crazy people putting up their trees already. I mean, people. Christmas trees do not go up before Thanksgiving. That's in the Bible. Now you say, I haven't read that, preacher. Well, it's in the back in the part you didn't read yet. Kind of close to maps, okay? But we're, we're sort of in this in-between season. And I love the, the cooler temperatures, but it's not absolutely cold. Uh, it's just one of my favorite seasons. Uh, in particular, one of my favorite parts of the season is the changing of the leaves, the colors. Man, and they are just extraordinary this year, Um, especially up and down Meridian, along the river. Uh, I hope where you live, the colors are just amazing. It's a beautiful sight, and it's a reminder of how good God is from our perspective. Did you ever think about the changing of the, the leaves and the color and all of that from a leaf's perspective? Probably not. Only preachers think about, think about weird things like that. But from a leaf's perspective, about this time of year is a tortuous, agonist time of year. 
as the water stops flowing and and the photosynthesis doesn't work and they slowly begin to shrivel up and die from dehydration. And as they eke out their last eeks of life, they slowly fall off the tree and fall to the ground, a cruel, cruel death. And we think that's cool. So in a weird way, this time of year is a terrible and beautiful time at the same time. What we're going to talk about tonight is a both terrible and beautiful event. In fact, the most terrible and beautiful event of all of human history. If you're following along, I hope you'll turn to John chapter 19, where we'll be tonight, as we record or walk along with John in this journey with Jesus as we look at the death of Jesus. We're going to be in John chapter 19, verses 16 through 42. Now, I'm going to read... Normally, my, my pulpit Bible is the NIV, uh, but for purposes tonight, I'm going to be reading the ESV, and so if you're a translation buff, you'll just know where I am. Um, it's a little, it reads a little bit different, but I do like it for this purpose. Starting verse 16 of John chapter 19. So, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus... And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So the soldiers had crucified Jesus. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one place, in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold. Your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked that Pilate, uh, Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out a sudden flow of blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on the one on whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. There's a lot going on in this terrible, beautiful event. Um, Certainly, I think, too much to cover in one sermon about the death of Jesus, the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Uh, shortly to be followed by the resurrection of Jesus, uh, which makes, makes Christianity altogether different and all the more powerful. But I want to talk to you about this event by focusing in on these verses. Actually, I want to talk to you about it by focusing just on one verse. Actually, just four words, to be precise, of one verse of this chapter from John. In John chapter 19, verse 18, the first four words of the description of verse 18 are what we're going to be focused on tonight. There, the place is called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Golgotha is a a transliterated word, which is a fancy $5 word for meaning we just... Spell it out exactly like it sounds, phonetically. And so Golgotha is a transliteration of the Aramaic word. And the transliterated Aramaic word simply means the word skull. I have pulled up here a picture of one place they think might be Golgotha. And if you look closely, you can probably piece out what looks to be a skull. Now, was that the exact location? We don't know. Um, there's that's debated among archaeologists and textual scholars, and I'm surely not going to settle it tonight. We do know, according to John's account, that the place of the skull was near the city. So where it was precisely, could it have been this place with a, a piece of the side of the mountain, of the hill where it was uh, that looks like a skull, perhaps. But uh, there's even that is debated What I want to focus on is that the place, wherever it was, was a terrible, 
cruel, awful place. Uh, Where most of the time the people saw the wrath of Rome poured out on those insurrectionists and rebels, those who would try to stir up trouble and and cause uh, rebellion and ruckus among the people. Wherever it was, Golgotha was a place where an innocent man died, but not without purpose. It wasn't in vain that he died. The cross was affixed to that hill or to that place in full view of all, Jew and Gentile and heavenly host alike. In my mind, there is no doubt that surrounding the place where Jesus was crucified was a plethora of heavenly angels who were waiting just waiting for the word to unleash hell on earth for those who would try to destroy and kill the Son of God. He was the beginning and the end. Through him all things were made and without him nothing that has been made was made. And they dared to take the Son of God and put him to a cross to die. I have no doubt that in full view of that host... This was offensive in ways that you and I cannot fathom. It was a cruel place. It was a dark place. It was a public place. But it was absolutely a place where Jesus intentionally went. We're told that he fixed his eyes toward Jerusalem. That he knew from the moment that he came to do his public ministry that his goal, his purpose was that cross on Golgotha. There they, the Jewish people, some might say, killed Jesus. Maybe it was the Roman Gentiles who had perfected, perfected the art of killing a man slowly and agonizingly for days. Some might argue that it was Pilate Or that it was the soldiers themselves who mocked and ridiculed. Peter said in Acts chapter 2 as he preached that great sermon on Pentecost. He said this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Whoever it was that had a part and however they had a part in the death of Jesus, we know that it was foremost in the mind of God. The plan from the beginning of the Father was to offer the Son. It was foretold in the story of Abram and Isaac was foreshadowed. It was told many times by Jesus, though his disciples didn't understand. And I'm not even sure as he was raised up on the cross that even then they fully understood. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes this. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Was the Jews, the the Romans, Pilate, the soldiers, the mind of God absolutely clear is that we too were complicit. You say, well, we weren't there. But yes, we were. Our sins Our sins were there long before we thought of them or committed upon them or acted upon them. They were there and we were there. Colossians 2 says, you who are dead in your transgresses, you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, there are some who want to say that, listen, we don't really need to focus on the cross because, oh, it's so gruesome and and terrible. And what we really need to do is just... Just say, you know, just live a good life. Just just live by the Ten Commandments. No, 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 not at all. You see, the, the, the law that you want to try to keep stood directly opposed to you. Because the problem was not the law itself. The law is perfect. The problem is that we are imperfect. And that every single time you and I break the law, the law has a one-word sentence for us, the lawbreakers. It is death. Death. And God's holy standard of perfection, when we try to measure up by any sort of... There's only the law pointing to us, standing against us, saying, Death. And this stood against us forever. Until Jesus stepped in and did what no one else could do. He paid the full price demanded by the law. So that when he was nailed to the cross, when he said, to tell us, star, it is finished. When he said, it is finished, what he was saying was, no more. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. Fully and completely. May we understand that though we did, by virtue of our sin, or by lack of virtue of our sin, bring him to that cross, it was to redeem us, to buy us back, to fulfill the legal obligations demanded by the law, by nailing all those things to the cross in him. There they Crucified. And no doubt you understand that crucifixion is the most terrible way to die. Um, you've watched the Passion of the Christ. You'll know that it's rated R for a reason. It's tremendously difficult, painful. Typically, a prisoner, in my study of the, the significant or the, the practice of a Roman crucifixion, would carry this horizontal bar. Think something along the lines of a railroad tie: huge, thick, heavy, burdensome. 
And they would affix that horizontal bar to the vertical post at Golgotha. His hands and feet were nailed, not through here where they would tear away, but but in the wrist, in the bones, right here, where it would hold firmly, but very painfully, the weight of the body. There was a put on the cross, uh, and sometimes you'll see this, a, a little footrest. And you say, was that to give them any relief? Absolutely not. It was only to prolong death, to agonize it. As a man stood there, you see, that the way in which he would die was the, the chest sinking in, him being unable to breathe. The only way to catch a breath was to pull himself up by the wrists, which were nailed into the horizontal beam. The only way he could even come remotely close after a flogging to do that was to just barely lift with his feet. To do so, to pull with his feet, with his hands and with his feet, caused excruciating pain. Every breath came at tremendous cost, so that the prisoner, the one hanging on the cross, had to weigh each breath. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because at some point, the brain measured that it was too much pain to take the next breath. And the breaths would shorten until eventually he would suffocate. But they put that little footrest there on the bottom. It would just, it would take the process a little longer. You see, they, they put him on a cross that was designed to kill, but designed to bring death slowly and agonizingly. In addition to the exposure and the sun, your skin being flayed open in the flogging. We know, of course, Jesus suffered excruciating pain in many ways. You may have heard this description uh, by a medical doctor, Dan Bowden, and he described the, the physical part of the cross. He writes, the major physiological effect of the crucifixion, beyond the excruciating pain caused by the spikes, was a marked restriction of respiration Primarily exhalation. With the weight of the body pulling down the outstretched arms and the shoulders, the respiratory muscles located between the ribs would be fixed in an inhalation state, thereby make exhalation a difficult feat requiring significant strength. Although shallow exhalations were possible, this would suffice only for a short while. Only by elevating the body, by pulling up on the hands and pushing upward with the legs, and thus supporting the entire weight of the body, by the pierced members alone, could normal exhalation be accomplished. This was such a painful maneuver for the body that could only be performed by intermittently and for short periods of time. In addition, the lifting of the body probably would painfully scrape the scourge back against the rough wood of the cross and cause a resumption of the bleeding. With such shallow breathing, carbon dioxide would quickly accumulate in the blood, leading to painful muscle cramps. With the limitation of breathing, fluid would quickly accumulate in the lungs and the pericardium, the sac surrounding the heart. This would further worsen respiration and hasten death. Death on a cross usually resulted from suffocation, shock, and exhaustion as a direct result of the victim's attempts to breathe. As the in congestive heart failure caused by the stress, the right side of the heart enlarges and results in fluid collecting in the lungs, pulmonary edema, and, the, and in the pericardium. As the spear continued through the lungs, it would next puncture the pericardium, the sac around the heart, allowing more water to drain out of the wound. 
Finally, the enlarged right ventricle of the heart would be punctured by causing a large flow of blood from the wound. Thus, water probably represents clear fluid from the lungs and the pericardial sac, and the blood is from the direct puncture of the right side of the heart. Just reading that is difficult. And all that said and all that described, and still we know that the worst part of the cross was none of that. Lots of people have been crucified. Perhaps some even worse physically than Jesus. It was, an, was not an unusual thing. So much so that when Jesus said, I call you to take up your cross and follow me, that was a very offensive thing to say. You and I see the cross more as a religious symbol. We have one across the hallway in the multipurpose room there. We see that and we think of faith in Jesus and Christianity and the church. But when they saw that, it was like seeing a noose, an electric chair, a, a bed used for the... Uh, Injections, the lethal injections. It, it was an instrument, it was a visual symbol of death. And death by one of the hardest ways possible. But in that moment, in the crucifixion, painful as it was, the worst part of it is what Jesus said in Psalm 22, when he quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In our fathers, you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted you, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they were trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man. Scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. You see, Jesus was, I don't think, I mean, obviously it was difficult and and tragic and, and terribly, terribly painful, but the most painful, tragic tragedy of the cross was not the physical difficulty, the physical pain and, and agony which he endured. It was for those hours, for the first time in all created world, even before time began, the sun... The son was forsaken by the father. 
The father held back. He, he, he didn't come when he cried out. He, he didn't rescue when he needed saving. And the father did that not because he hated the son, but because he loved us. There they crucified. May you not forget or take too lightly how much of a price Jesus paid. And may you not just focus on the physical agony of the cross, but remember that it was your for your sake that the Father forsook the Son. You can't even you can't even fathom in your own minds forsaking your own son or daughter. In a moment when they, they could be hurt or killed or even worse, try alone to fathom the Father intentionally, purposefully, for your eternity and mine, turning his back on the Son. And they crucified him. Him. John would record that Nathaniel said, in John 1.46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. In, in John chapter 1, verse 48 and 49, he's called the king of the Jews. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, and when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. They crucified Jesus of Nazareth. They crucified the king of the Jews. They crucified the only son. John 1.14 The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory and the glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Some, some people complain. They say, you know, God seems so silent. God seems so distant. Never say God is silent and have your Bible closed. You want to hear from God? Open the book and read and hear what God has to say. But they took the writer of the words. They took the one who inspired the book. The, the one whose scriptures they had memorized, but the author they forsook. May we not forget it was him. It was the son. It was when the words became flesh. When we could see the holy standard of God lived out. And he had eye color and hair color and a smile and a voice. And he could hug people and hold people. And he healed people. And he used his beautiful tongue to teach people, even from the earliest age, the beautiful son, the word who became flesh. They crucified the teacher. Remember in John 1, 13 and 14, Jesus said, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. They sacrificed their friend. Just a few chapters earlier, 
John would say, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. They crucified him, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, the only son, the beautiful teacher, the faithful friend, and the Lamb of God. John chapter 1, we remember again. The next day he saw Jesus coming before him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this is sort of an interesting side note here. If you read in Exodus 12 and Numbers chapter 9, you'll see a, a couple of things. Or I mean, one particular thing is that the Passover lamb was not to have any of its bones broken so that it could be pure, be a beautiful sacrifice. And here is Jesus being sacrificed on the cross as the Passover lambs were being slaughtered throughout Jerusalem. No bone of his was broken. And I wonder if they realized. I wonder if they knew for the first time since they had ever celebrated Passover, that sin would finally be defeated. There they crucified Him. May we not ever skip over or pass through or forget or take for granted. God forgive us. And I know there's a resurrection coming. You know there's a resurrection coming. But we need to stop and pause at the cross and understand just how great His love is for you and I. He died so that we might live. Guys, you're going to have to advance that slide. Clicker's not working. He died so that we might live. He died that we might live. Oh, back it up one. (laughs) Let us do then two things. Number one, may we focus on the cross as, as a way, as a means of reminding us how great his love is for us, how valuable we are to him. How much, how deeply, his love knows no limits. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The the cross, it it reminds us so much of, of these things, of how much we're loved, how much we're worth. The tomb, you see... The empty tomb is our hope. But the cross is the catalyst. There there is no empty tomb without first coming to the cross. And may we then, as our Savior did, live lives who are crucified to self. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified says Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in 
me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, the scripture says clearly that understanding the sacrifice, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we, this is so good, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We don't die for our sins. You know, you, I, I know sometimes I'll hear people, I don't know if they mean well, but they'll say, man, it should have been me on that cross. Absolutely not. That is the worst thing that could happen. I mean, even if it did happen to you, the price of your blood would not pay for your sins, let alone the sins of the whole world. It could only be him. The pure, spotless blood of the Lamb. The Lamb of God. I'll finish by reading a quote maybe you've heard from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering with which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. You see, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, Bonhoeffer said it well. Paul said it far better in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's in that moment where we're unified with a crucified Christ. He died that we might live. And we live for the purpose of dying to ourselves and dying to whatever we want that we might live for eternity with God. We were buried with him through baptism into death that in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The cross much like the autumn leaves, is a terrible and beautiful act of God. May we not forget its terror, but may we not lose sight of its beauty. Tonight, if you are ready to begin the walk with Christ, as Bonhoeffer said, to come and die, to put off the old self, to repent of sin, and to turn toward the cross, And to begin live daily, not for yourself, but for the Savior. If you're ready to put him on in baptism, to begin the first step of a a journey, truly, not with John, but with Jesus, you can begin that tonight. If you're ready to do that, or if on your journey you've lost your way, lost your focus, forgotten what it's all about, and we'd like to pray with you and encourage you and help you.
You can recenter yourself back where you need to be and focus on him, his life, his death, and the hope of his resurrection. If you have need tonight, come join me down front as together we stand and sing.